2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4 to 25. We've, uh, we've seen a few brutal killings and dismemberments. Uh, David's just gained the loyalty of, of the whole of Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, You will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David had said, Anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward. And he became more and more powerful because the Lord Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. <clears throat> After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Raphaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went to Baal-perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, As waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal-perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. Once more, the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Do not go straight up, but circle around from behind them, and attack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Giza. Well, as we come uh, to the sermon today, let me pray. Uh, Lord God, as we hear from your word, uh, open our hearts, open our eyes uh, to understand more and more about who, who you are and what you've done through your son. Amen. A man by the name of Philip James Elliot was a Christian missionary who, in the 1950s, took part in a project to evangelise to unreached people in the country of Ecuador. 
Now, he was bright and academically capable, recently married, and he was a gifted public speaker. And throughout doing many, many years of theological and ministry training, he spent more and more effort in uh, time and prayer preparing to evangelise to the Harani people in the deep Ecuadorian jungle. Now, within a few months of meeting them, he and his four companions were brutally murdered. They were murdered by the tribal warriors of that village. Now, he was only 28 years old when he was killed, and as far as I'm aware, he didn't convert a single person. He wanted to tell the Harani people about God's victorious king who gives new life in the hope that they would turn to him. But where did he end up? He ended up dead in a river and was called a failed missionary. So the question is, did Jim Elliot waste his life? Well, we come to the passage today now knowing that David has been sworn in as king by the elders of Israel in Hebron. And last week we saw the demise of the previous so-called king, Ishbosheth, Murdered by two Benjamites, as we remember from last week, Rechab and Barna, they were both leaders of gangs, raiding parties, and they're actually from his own house. On the one hand, we have David's family growing stronger and stronger and stronger, and on the other side, we have Saul's family, which is pretty much non-existent, except for a small boy who was lame called Mephibosheth. So, with this in mind, let us come to the passage today. From verse 4, and from verse 4 it says, David, David was 30 years old, and he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. Now, this part is actually helpful for us as it gives us a bit of context and a bit of a snapshot into David's rule as king. First being over Judah, seven years, and then over Israel for the additional 33, as well as Judah, 40 years in total. But, have a look on the screen, notice where he's reigning. Where is he reigning? He's reigning in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem doesn't actually exist as the capital of Israel. He's actually still in Hebron, where he's been anointed to be king. So, what is the deal with Jerusalem? What's the go with this place? Well, let's find out. As we read on, verse 6, the king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. Now, after a long story, he is finally, officially the king over the entirety of Israel. And what's the first thing he does? He marches to Jerusalem to attack the people there called the Jebusites. Now, thinking back to the days of Moses, God has instructed his people to do many things, but when they go into the promised land, he has told them to drive out all the nations there, whose wickedness, immoral activities and rebellion became so bad that God had just had enough. Some of these nations included the Ammonites, Perizzites, Hivites, and of course, the ones in the verse here, the Jebusites. Now, so far, Israel has had no luck with these people. Now, we actually see in the start of Joshua that the Jebusites actually lived with God's people. 
So from Joshua chapter 15, 63, it says, Judah could not dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. And to this day, the Jebusites still live there with the people of Judah. Now, God's people, Israel, are meant to be set apart. They're meant to be holy and they're meant to be separate from the nations. So to have them living with a a people group who God has told them to get rid of is not a good start for Israel at all. They haven't been able to get rid of the Jebusites. So now David, being newly appointed king by the elders and the whole of Israel, seeing the failure before him, seeks to do what God's people haven't done. But there seems to be a bit of formidable opposition. So the rest of verse 6. The Jebusites said to David, You will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Now, as we've just mentioned, they actually have a 2-0 victory record over Israel. They've tried two times to get into Jerusalem, but both times they've failed. So the confident and fierce Jebusites mock David. Now, these words on the screen actually sound a little reminiscent of the way Goliath mocked David in 1 Samuel. Goliath despised him on three things. His youth, his defences, and more importantly, his trust in God. The God of the army is the true God of Israel. But we're not, ex- we're not surprised that yet again, David has an unexpected victory. Verse 7. David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. Just like that, David walks in and defeats the Jebusites. Once again, David has done what seemed impossible, and it is now possible. But how did this happen? Verse 8. On that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. It so happens that a group of archaeologists have identified this very water shaft. Not only was this a piece of ancient engineering genius, but it was a way that water could be stored used and distributed when the city was in siege. That's actually not a live photo of David and his men, just let you know, but just thought I'd clarify that. And to top it off, the same language is even used in the claims of David and his chances of entering. Let's have a look at the comparison. From verse 6, even the blind and lame can ward you off. And then David says, use the water shaft to reach those who are lame and blind who are David's enemies. The lame and blind, so to speak, are now the Jebusites. And David and his men have conquered them. Did the ultimate, you know, reverse. To make it worse for this conquered nation, this is now a common saying among God's people, Israel. And so once the blind and lame are out of Jerusalem, David takes up residency. He calls it the fortress of Zion the city of David. Now here we're meant to think, what other king has been before David? David's kingship has a striking contrast to that of Saul. Saul, the chosen king by God's people, the man who hid behind the boxes, failed to defeat many enemies that God had commanded him, and he ended up dead on a mountain on his own spear. Now David 
the king chosen according to God's own heart, was firm on residing in obedience to God's word. And he's now defeated the Jebusites to the shock and horror of his enemies. From verse 10, And he became more and more powerful. The Lord God Almighty was with him. The Lord God Almighty is with David. Now, with our Old Testament glasses on, we can see this is the reign of David so far. Think back to Genesis 3. God promised that a special person would strike the head of the serpent, one that would bring about man's deliverance from sin and Satan's destruction. But David so far has a pretty good scorecard so far. If we have a look at David's potential promised king scorecard, he's ticking a few boxes. One, he's conquered an enemy people. His family line is in success. And, more importantly, he has the God Almighty with him. As readers, we're meant to think, is this the promised king from Genesis 3 who would deliver God's people? Is this the anointed king who will reign? Is the promise going to be fulfilled through David and his kingship? Or has the promise already been fulfilled? Well, let's continue from verse 13. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Elephalet. Some good kids' names in here as well, if anyone's having a kid in the future. Um, just like Mephibosheth from last week. Now, throughout the book of 2 Samuel 2 far, we've seen significant emphasis on two things. People's names and people's where they're living, the places. Now, normally when an author and writer mention something, I know from my time in English, when they mention it repetitively, we should probably make note of it and see that what idea is being conveyed. Now, if we think back to 2 Samuel chapter 3, at the start of 2 Samuel chapter 3, there's a whole list of names mentioned. Now, specifically, they're all from the line of David. And as we just said with Genesis 3, there's a promise for someone to come and crush and strike the serpent's head. But with the continuing battle of Saul and David, we are now seeing that David is the one who God will work through to bring about a king, with Saul's family non-existent. Further, in Genesis 15, if we think back to Genesis 15, Abraham, the patriarch of God's people, is promised a nation so numerous as the stars in the sky that he can't count it. And where does this happen? It happens in Hebron. David is multiplying his kingdom through family and descendants. But with ever-increasing family and descendants and power being brought by David and his kingdom, the nations are getting a bit worried. The success of a newly established king is bringing about a new era in Israel that Israel has not had before. And in the second half of this chapter, we're going to make two responses to the prosperity of Israel, and specifically to David and God's kingdom. So let's have a look at this first response. 
In verse 11, we meet a guy called King Haram. So, from verse 11. Now Haram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David, along with cedar logs, carpenters, stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Upon seeing the rise of King David, the king of Tyre reaches out and providing him materials and labourers to build a palace for him. Now, this would be more like a treaty um, kind of thing, and King Haram knows that it is important to have David on his good side and not on his bad side. Political stability and relationships are used in this instance to assist God's people. And this is the first instance of a foreign king coming to David, whether in Jerusalem or Hebron. King David's blessing is now not only within Israel, but it's being seen outside of Israel too. David was definitely right to see that the Lord had established his kingdom, particularly because Tyre, a foreign nation, was actually bringing him tribute, which of course would result in the coming about of the blessing to Abraham's people being spread out to all the nations. See here that the success of David isn't actually noted on his own doing. Now, remember, over the past few weeks, we've seen lots of bloodshed and a few people's body parts getting ripped apart. But these two family lines have been going head to head, both suffering big losses, like I just said. But it wasn't because of a family feud. It wasn't because of Haram. It wasn't because of his materials and service. It wasn't because of Rechab and Barna murdering Isbosheth. Rather, it was because of who? The Lord had established him. The Lord had established him as king over Israel. And David's kingdom here wasn't for himself. It was for God's people. A people who have made, been made for God by the rule and kingship of David. And that is what Israel is meant to be. Now, on the opposite side of the equation... Despite David's clear and good kingship, the Philistines don't agree. And they don't like him at all. So, let's read from verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come out and spread out in the Valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered, Go, for I'll surely deliver, you into the, deliver the Philistines into your hands. And there the Philistines abandoned their idols, and David and his men carried them off. Now the Philistines, unlike the king of Tyre, see the reuniting of Israel as a big threat. And as the Jebusite victory has spread to the Philistines, they are undoubtedly worried. They are scared and frightened that David might do the same to them. What differs here is their response between Haram and the Philistines. Instead of recognising and respecting the authority that God has placed for David, they oppose it. They oppose the one that God has appointed to rule over his people. And as we have seen in previous chapters, 
rejecting and going against the appointed king does not go well for you. And in this case, we see what happens in verse 20. Now, the Lord will deliver the Philistines into David's hand. That is their fate. But notice here that it doesn't happen straight away. The Philistines have left their idols and David and his men have picked them up and taken them away. But the Philistine people haven't had anything done to them yet. It's just their idols. They are not dispersed or destroyed, but they seem to be still in the area. Verse 22. Once more the Philistines came up. They spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Do not go straight up. Circle around them and attack them from in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the top of the poplar trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike down the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. Only the second time that they come into the valley are they truly delivered into David's hand. And who is it by? Delivered by God. Now, we can see the parallels if you have a look in your Bibles between verse 17 and 18 and 22 and 23. They're actually attempting to do the same thing again, even with their gods and idols taken from David's men. They're persistent. But the second time, the Lord gives David specific instructions and it comes to pass. The deliverance as promised of the Philistines getting scattered from Gibeon to Gezer. And we did, I did a bit of research into the, how long that is. It's over a 30-kilometre radius, so it's a long way. Now, the Philistines are held responsible for their rebellion opposition, and specifically their rebellion opposition to the king. And that is their downfall. And this is all because of what? Because David trusts and obeys that God will deliver him. He trusts and obeys that God in God's plans for his kingship. Fulfilling what was said back in chapter 3 by Abner, this is what Abner said. God's servant David has freed and saved his people from the power of the Philistines. Unlike those before him, such as Saul, he doesn't act out of self-interest. He doesn't attack. He doesn't deceive. Rather, he waits on God's timing. Now, victory for God's people Israel has come about through who? The reign of David. With the enemies of God defeated, both the Jebusites and the Philistines, a new era of God's people has started. David, unlike those before him, has carried out his duty and brought safety and stability to Israel. Now, this is a sign of a united Israel under a king who desires God's will and the wellness of his own people. Despite the circumstances that David was provided with, he was victorious. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see how that plays out. There is a real inevitability that the establishment of God's king, David, will happen. No matter the dreams and schemes of the people around him, no matter the family line conflict, David was always destined to come to this point. And that means just like the Philistines and Haram, 
We can either be on board with the reality of the kingdom or we can live in opposition to Christ. Those are the two options. If we think back to Jim Elliot, he, did he waste his life? Not at all. It is inevitable that Jesus' reign will be permanently established. And it is only a matter of time before the Harani people will bow their knees and confess that Jesus is Lord. And not only will they do it, but we all will. Some willingly and some unwillingly. Those who choose to serve him, what do they get? Eternal life. And those who don't serve him, what do they get? Separated for eternity. Opposition to God's plan is always going to happen in this world, but no matter how unlikely it seems, how long it might take, the reality that must not be ignored is that the chosen King Jesus will undoubtedly be victorious no matter the circumstances. Defeating death on a wooden Roman cross, he was mocked, scorned and shamed by the people who did not expect victory. Winning over evil, he fought the war of sin and death, resurrecting to new life where he did claim victory, having his kingship firmly established forever. The now-proclaimed Son of God reigning at the right hand of the Father and on account of Jesus' guaranteed rule for eternity over all people and all things, how much more should this spur us on to live for Christ in all we do? Jim Elliot sacrificed his comforts to ensure that the kingdom and the gospel would go to the nations. So knowing that Jesus will return and will triumph no matter the circumstances and is undoubtedly victorious, what does that leave us to do? Continue to come to church. Prioritise your church family. Support the gospel mission. Support gospel work through prayer and giving. And in Australia, we have the great opportunity to do this in relative security and peace. So, as God's people, let's operate in a mindset that Christ's work will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Let me pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we come before you as broken people. People from all backgrounds and situations. Help us to not only recognise, but to trust the King that you have placed above us. Trusting in both your plans and in your purposes. Work in our hearts to spur us on. Continue to proclaim your message to the world so that so many people can come to not only recognise but to completely trust in your son and his work at the cross. And it's in his name that we all pray. Amen.